so unfriendly this weekend. Yeah, I feel bad that I can't shake all of your hands. <laughs> it's been wonderful getting to know you all. Um, even staying with Ken and Colleen has been great. Lots of good fellowship. Oh, yes, I need to turn this on. Yeah. And uh, meeting you all yesterday and today, look forward to more of that. Um, we really feel at home here. We feel like, well, it is. It is the family of Christ, isn't it? Wherever you go as a believer, you can find a church and really be at home with the family of God. So we're thankful for that. Um, if you would turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we'll be staying this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 8 and 9, just two verses. And I'd just like to begin with prayer again. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word that you have given to us, the law of the Lord. It is perfect, Lord, and it revives our souls. We ask that you would revive us this morning through your word, that you would give understanding to the simple. Lord, that you would refresh us and lead us to green pastures and still waters. Comfort our souls, Lord, with this gospel truth. Lord, we thank you that we only come to you on the basis of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. And it's in his name we ask that he would be exalted this morning and that your church would be built up and edified. And if there are souls here this morning who are not believers yet, Lord, we ask for the gracious gift of faith and repentance to be imparted even now, in Jesus' name, amen. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. These are verses that have been impactful in my own life. As I look back at my own story of coming to know the Lord, these verses have an instrumental part. And maybe that's the case even for some of you here today. These verses are powerful verses. They include great truths about how the Lord brings someone to saving faith. And maybe J.C. Ryle is a name you know of. He was an evangelical minister in the mid to late 1800s. His influence has continued down through the ages, through his writings, his books. But Ryle grew up in a home where he went to church every Sunday, but he said there was never anything in those services that could do good to his soul. He never heard of Jesus Christ in a saving way. But as he was in college in 1837, God began to awaken his soul through a chain of events. He was rebuked by a friend for his 
swearing and loose behavior, and he began to think about the seriousness of his sin. And in this serious state of mind, one morning, he walked into a church he had never been to before. He says he doesn't remember anything about the sermon that was preached that day, that nothing remarkable about the preaching, but there was a random guy just standing at the front reading Scripture. And what passage was it? Well, it was this passage that we're reading this morning. And as this man enunciated verse 8 very clearly, by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Ryle's heart was opened to understand the good news about Jesus. And Ryle reflected on that season of life later and said, before that time I was dead in my sins and on the high road to hell, and from that time I became alive and had a hope of heaven. Now, why are these verses so powerful? Well, it's because they speak of that powerful, life-changing, dead sinner awakening good news of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is such a beautiful description of how God saves us from our sins. He shows us here what our disease is as human beings and what the remedy is in Christ Jesus. Verses 1 to 3 gives us that before picture, formerly, what we were before Christ. If we're believers, we can look back and we can say, yes, I was dead in my sins. I was a slave to sin, Satan, society, and self. And then verses 4 to 7 give us the after picture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. He's raised us up with him. He's brought us into the heavenly places, as it were, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The saving work of God, bringing dead sinners alive in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, if we skip verses 8 and 9, speaks of another goal of salvation, that God saves us for the purpose of good works, which he has already prepared for us to do, that we would walk in them. Just as a carpenter would craft a chair in order for the purpose of sitting in it, God creates Christians for the purpose of doing good works in the world. But if we back up to verses 8 and 9, God describes here how salvation comes to us. He describes how salvation works on His end. How does God extend salvation to us? And on our end, how do we then reach up and take this salvation for ourselves? How is it that sinners receive salvation? And this is actually a problem. If you think about who God is, can there be a transaction of kindness between the almighty, holy, living God and dead sinners who are in rebellion against Him? 
It would seem that God should rather leave us behind in our sin. And indeed, this passage says we are destined for wrath. We're children of wrath. We're disconnected from the Lord Jesus Christ if we are walking in sin. We're like oil and water, God in us. We don't mix. We're like two friends who have broken off a relationship and have vowed to never get back together again. We're like two nations at war, if you will. Well, then how then can this transaction of God giving us his favor, uniting us to his son, bringing us into heaven, making us alive in Christ Jesus, how can God save us? Well, we'll answer this by looking at three truths in this text. We'll look at what is the agent of salvation, what is the instrument of salvation, and what is the goal of salvation. So first we see in this passage, the agent of salvation is God's grace. By grace you have been saved, it says. An agent is someone or something that takes an active role in an action and produces an effect. So you think of leaven. Leaven is the rising agent in bread. Bread rises by leaven. You think of lights that come on by electricity. Electricity is the the agent that produces light in a light bulb. And in the same way, God's grace is the saving agent in a Christian. We are given new life, we rise to new life, and we're given the light of salvation by God's grace. It is the agent. Well, we should ask, what is grace exactly? I'm sure you all know, being at a church like this, what grace is. A classic definition is grace is undeserved favor, right? Undeserved kindness. It's not something we deserve, but it's given anyway. Grace is the parent who welcomes home a rebellious child who has gone away into drugs and reckless living and now wants to come back into the home. Grace is that welcoming home to someone who doesn't deserve it. Grace is even the wife who receives back an adulterous husband. That is grace, undeserved kindness. So God shows undeserved kindness to sinners. We have not earned and cannot earn our way into God's good books. We can never bend his arm to give us salvation by our own worthiness. Only the compassion, mercy, and grace of God's own heart can motivate him to save us. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us freedom when we should go on in slavery to sin. He reaps righteousness for us when all we have sown is wickedness. He gives us salvation when we should get damnation. It is God's grace that saves us, that is the agent of salvation. Now, I want to pose four questions here that will help us to clarify what exactly God's grace looks like to us. 
These might be thoughts that come to our minds, questions that we might have. First of all, is God's grace an impersonal grace? We may be tempted to think that this agent is some impersonal force or power that comes upon us and saves us. Perhaps we feel far away from God because of our sin, and we think of his grace as a lifesaver that's thrown out to us on, on a long line as we're drowning in the ocean. Perhaps we think of it as some healing medicine that God leaves at our door with a note and then takes his leave. And we drink it and we're healed. But God's grace is not so impersonal. It is a personal grace. He's more like the lifeguard who swims into the ocean while we are drowning and dies in the process of saving us and bringing us to shore. He is more like the doctor who himself is operating on us on the operating table as we lie unconscious. This saving grace is God himself in all that he is, coming to sinners with all that they are, in kindness, in favor, in love, bringing us up to himself. You think of Jesus who said, I came to seek and to save the lost, right? He came into this world to seek us out, to do the work that was necessary to save us. It's not an impersonal grace. He chose us before all ages began. He had names written in his book. He came for specific sheep. You think of those parables Jesus gives, right? He is like the shepherd who loses a sheep and forsakes all the 99 others to go and find the lost sheep and bring him back and rejoices when he finds that sheep. He's like the woman who loses a precious coin and she searches all over her house until she finds that coin and she rejoices. He's like the father who welcomes back the prodigal son, throws a feast, employs him back into his service and rejoices to find his son who was lost but now is found. This is a personal grace. Now, is, is grace sort of added upon duty? Is there any sense of duty in God that he must save us or he's convinced to save us? Perhaps he looks down the corridor of time and sees our faith and then feels compelled to save us. Perhaps he sees that we're strong or successful or we have some good attribute that we could add to the kingdom. And so, well, he bends the rules a little bit. He knows we're sinful, but, well, I really want that guy on my team, so I'll welcome him in by my grace. No, if we know the scriptures, we know that not many of us are noble, not many of us are powerful, not many of us were wise, not many of us come from the royal line, so to speak. God does not save us out of a sense of duty. God chose us in Christ and ransomed us in Christ completely, totally, by grace. 
It says in this passage, it goes on to say, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. See, salvation is not like a paycheck that we earn. It is a free gift. It's a surprise gift, even, that God springs upon us. It's all of grace. It's something we didn't pay for, we didn't plan, we didn't wrap it up and take it for ourselves. God planned our salvation. He purchased our salvation. He presents our salvation to us in the gospel message. And then he even prompts us to receive it by faith. So this is not any duty in God, but grace alone that saves us. Well, is it a grace with strings attached? Is, there, is salvation something like a Spotify free trial? Like you try it for three months for free, and then you end up having to pay for it. No, salvation is of grace from beginning to end. If we were look, to look at Ephesians chapter 1, we would see that God chooses us, adopts us, redeems us, and seals us for our eternal inheritance, all to the praise of His glorious grace, right? It is His grace from beginning to end. There are no strings attached. We can't lose our salvation. When God truly saves someone, He will keep them to the end, even though the holiest saint, even at the end of their life, will still say, I am a sinner. Daniel Rowland, maybe you've heard of him. He was a preacher who was used by God greatly in the Second Great Awakening, or sorry, the Great Awakening, I believe, and he was a preacher in Wales. And at the end of his life, as he was nearing death, he said, I am nothing but an old sinner saved by the grace of God. That will be our testimony as well. Fourth question. Is this grace a cheap grace? Is it cheap grace? Cheap grace is forgiveness without transformation. Cheap grace is grace that costs nothing and does nothing. Is God's grace cheap? Does He simply impart forgiveness to us and then we can go on in our sins? And live a life that we were living before? No, if we also are familiar with the grace of God, we know that once you are saved by God's grace, this grace compels you to live differently. It's not a cheap grace, it's a, it's a rich grace. It's a transformative grace. It's a powerful grace. It is not forgiveness without transformation, nor was it cheap for God Himself. What was the cost for God to extend His kindness to us? It was the precious blood of His own Son. God gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. And it has a cost for us as well. Jesus often told people to count the cost of following Him. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this is what you must do. You must count the cost. 
Yes, God's grace is free to you. It it is full. It is rich. He will forgive you of all your sins. But he also calls you to a life of suffering from persecution. Of being unashamed about the gospel. Of following him and not looking back. Of alienation from the world. This is not something that earns our salvation, but it is the only possible response of a saved sinner. You think of that hymn, When I Behold the Wondrous Cross. There's that line, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fear of the Lord follows his forgiveness. Romans 2.4 says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So God's grace is not cheap, weak, or powerless. It comes with transforming power. God's grace is not impersonal. It is not grace plus duty. It does not come with strings attached It is certainly not cheap. It is personal. It is unconstrained. It is free. It is transformative. It is the living God himself extending to us his steadfast, irrevocable blessing and love and kindness based on nothing he has seen in us. But it most certainly changes us. Now, let me stop at this point and just press this truth home about the grace of God being the agent of salvation into our hearts a little bit more. If all of this is true, then I just want to focus on one implication. That is, if you are a Christian, you must be a thankful person. You must be a thankful person if you've experienced this grace of God. You know, even unbelievers understand the concept of thankfulness to some degree. They understand that it's to no avail to be negative all the time, looking on the negative, being discontent, not reflecting on the good things that we have. But so often Christians who deserve everlasting punishment but have received everlasting bliss in the Lord Jesus Christ are unthankful, focus on the negative. We often complain. Too often Christians complain like Israel in the wilderness. Right after God brings them out of Egypt by a great act of salvation, they begin to complain about a lack of water and they don't trust that this God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt, walked them through the Red Sea, could give them a little bit of water. No, we should spend time often reflecting on two things. That is, what do I deserve and what have I received? And let our hearts be thankful that God has shown undeserved kindness through the Lord Jesus Christ, giving us salvation by his grace. Now, we might ask as well, How is this grace of God conferred to us? If we were to think of God's grace as 
a mighty water stream? What is the channel through which it runs? If grace is the agent of salvation, then what is the instrument of salvation? We see this next in the text. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Use the example of a plumber. A plumber would be the agent who comes in and fixes your plumbing. But he would always bring a tool or an instrument with him, right? Probably a pipe wrench, right, would be the favorite tool of a plumber. He takes his wrench and uses it to fix the leak. Or as an artist would make a beautiful picture. But an artist always uses a medium, an instrument, a tool. He will choose a pen or a paintbrush or a pencil to do his work. Well, the agent of salvation is God in his grace. But the agent uses an instrument, and that is faith. Faith is the instrument, the means by which God extends salvation to us. It is the means by which we grab hold of salvation. The text says, by grace you have been saved through faith. I want to ask some more questions about faith to clarify exactly what it is as well. Is faith merely intellectual assent? Is it merely belief in facts? Is it simply a means of understanding and agreeing with things? Is it a mental checklist? Yes, I believe Jesus is God. Yes, I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he died for sinners. No. Well, faith does include knowledge, but it also includes belief and trust, reliance upon Christ and what he has done. It is a a trusting, a relying, a clinging to Christ. It is when you see no other hope but Jesus Christ, and you see your sins and your need for a Savior, and you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing He has power to save, expecting Him to save you, knowing that He has purchased your forgiveness through His death and resurrection, and you come to Him and rely upon Him to make the payment for your debt at the cross, and you cling to his power to save you from death and hell, that is true faith. You know, you may not even know much about Jesus, but you trust him. I think of that woman in Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman. She might not have known too much about the Lord Jesus. She knew that he was Lord She knew that he was the son of David, the Messiah, but she still came up to him and she believed he was the only one who could save her daughter from that demon possession. And she wouldn't stop badgering him until he gave that benefit, that salvation. And what does Jesus say to her at the end of that passage? He says, oh woman, Great is your faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you 
as you desire. Faith is a clinging, a relying on Christ alone, not simply in agreement with facts. Is faith in the second place a perfect faith? Does our faith have to be perfect? Does it have to be a complete, total trust in Jesus in order for us to be saved? Well, I would look again to the Gospels and Mark chapter 9, there's this man who has a son possessed by an unclean spirit. And at first he doubts the power of Jesus to save. He says, if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then the man seeing his lack of faith cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus commands the spirit to come out of the boy. And often we come to Jesus even with a weak faith, knowing that we have a tinge of unbelief, but he receives us still. You know, if a beggar with a weak, trembling hand asks for money on the street, he can still receive those coins. God extends this gift of salvation to us in Jesus Christ. And even if you reach out with a weak faith, he will still save you. It does not depend so much on the strength of your faith, but on the strength of the object of your faith, your Savior. Fourth question. Is faith itself a work that earns us the favor of God. Some in thinking through these truths could wonder, well, if we need to believe in order to be saved, if faith is the instrument of salvation, well, then isn't it a good work in itself, in a sense, that earns us salvation? Well, I won't deny that faith is in action, that we do truly perform. But it is not a work that earns us salvation. In Paul's mind, the apostle, there was a fundamental difference between faith and works. We see that if we read on in the passage. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Galatians 2.16, Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be declared innocent before God. That is justified by works. It is only by faith. So you see there's a sharp distinction between faith and works. Faith is not a work. Think of a gift analogy that I mentioned earlier. If salvation is a gift of God's grace offered to us, think of someone offering a gift to you. If you were to take that gift gladly, does that mean that any praise should go to you 
for grabbing that gift? Who would be thanked in that situation? Is it the giver of the gift or the person who received the gift? No, it's the giver. Those who get the gift get no glory for the process, for the transaction of getting that gift. The taking of the gift does not earn you the gift. It was already offered to you. It was already held out to you. Faith is simply the hands reaching out to take the gift God is already offering. And there is no merit in that. There is no work in that. It's simply receiving what Christ has already done. What God has already presented to us in the gospel message. Simply trusting in that. Simply receiving the gift of salvation. John Calvin says, Faith brings a man empty to God to be filled with the blessings of Christ. It is us coming empty before God, receiving all of his blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is an amazing truth. That salvation's agent is God's grace and salvation's instrument is faith. And it's so amazing because it's counterintuitive to the entire way we think as human beings. You see, all people want to be the hero of their own story, don't we? We're tempted by this. We grow up identifying with the main characters in movies and video games who save the world through their own efforts, right? Maybe a little bit of magical help along the way. And all other religions even sell us this lie as well, that we can save ourselves, make ourselves better, and make others better through our own efforts. And we can gain some favor with a god or a deity through what we do. From Islam with its five pillars of devotion to Mormonism with its idea that you can make yourself a god through good actions if you live well enough, to legalism with its idea that we can earn God's favor through our obedience to his law. These religions all sell us something that is untrue and is ultimately hopeless. If you know anything about the depths of your sinfulness, even in thought and desire and imagination, let alone words and actions, and you know anything about God's greatness and his holiness, there is absolutely no hope that you could clean yourself up enough to earn God's favor. No, we need a savior. We need a way of salvation that entirely robs us of any ability to do it ourselves. And it is this way that God is provided in the gospel. It is not by our, our, our obedience to his standards. It is not something that we can look into ourselves to find. It is not something that we can obtain through any number of rituals or prayers or ceremonies. It is only by God's grace through faith. I'll stop here again 
to think a bit about how this truth applies to us, that salvation is through faith. Well, first of all, if there are any here seeking salvation, you need to leave your own self-righteousness behind. You need to stop trying to earn God's favor. You need to realize that that's a losing battle. Salvation is not a paycheck again. It is not a reward that you earn by your own good deeds, by cleaning yourself off, by leaving off your own sins. It is a gift that you need to turn around and receive in repentance and faith. Turn and trust in Jesus Christ and he will save you. This is that great promise in John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is through faith. Come to him trusting, relying on him alone, trusting in his strength to save you. The Bible says he's mighty to save. So come to him with this promise, trust in him and receive salvation. Now, secondly, if you are here and you are saved, you've received the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in him, then I think you need to be comforted by this truth as well. Christ always spoke peace and comfort to those who truly believed in him. When the paralytic was being let down through the roof by his friends, because they believed only Jesus could heal him, it says that Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He saw his faith and forgave him of his sins. Or that woman with the issue of blood for many years, she comes and touches Christ's garment, just the edge, and she's healed. And Jesus turns around and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So if you're here today as a believer of one with genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, you need to hear his words again. He says to you, even you, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Be healed of your disease. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. That is great comfort to the soul, knowing that Jesus accepts us simply on the basis of our faith. It's a gracious gift which he has produced, which he gives to us freely without cost, and we receive by simple faith in him. And in robbing us of any ability to save ourselves, God does take all the glory for himself, doesn't he? And this is the third point we see in the text, the goal of salvation. Verse 9 ends with this truth. God has saved us by grace, through faith, not of our own works, so that no one may boast. This is the goal of salvation. He saves us this way. He has made this particular way of saving us so that at the end of it all, we would not be able to puff out our chests, 
pat ourselves on the back and thank ourselves for our salvation, but we would give all the glory to him and we would be left a humble people. Going back to the plumber and the artist, when they do their work, do we admire them or the instrument that they used? Do we thank the wrench or praise the pencil? No, we thank the plumber and we praise the artist. God is that tradesman, an artist who takes pride in the work that he has accomplished. And we ought to give him all praise and glory as well. We don't praise faith. We don't thank ourselves for believing. We get no glory for receiving God's gift. How odd would it be for someone to receive a free gift and then go on to thank themselves? Or even to refuse that gift and go and buy another one themselves? No, God gets all the praise, all the glory, all the thanks for our salvation when we receive it by faith. And it adds no glory or credit to ourselves. And to press this third truth home, I want to leave you with this idea. Christians, Christians, especially those Christians who understand these doctrines, that salvation is by grace, through faith, we should be the most humble people on the planet, shouldn't we? If you understand God's grace toward you in saving you, you should be an immensely humble person because you understand that you only deserved hell. You only deserved God's wrath. You deserve condemnation, not salvation, but God gave you what you did not deserve and he offered it to you and you simply received it by faith, trusting in the Savior. And so how humble should you be? It is odd that we can still at times be so proud and domineering and harsh and critical when we profess to have been rescued from everlasting punishment, which we deserved by the selfless love of Christ. And I trust you're all very humble people here at Coram Deo. Certainly what I've seen is that you are thankful, humble, gracious people. But pride is one of our greatest enemies, isn't it? In the Christian life. So we need to be reminded that the way God has saved us should lead us to great humility, that we should not boast. And we're left saying with Paul, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only thing we boast about. The only thing we glory in is Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So as we reflect on the agent, the instrument, and the goal of our salvation in Christ this morning, may we be a people who are genuinely thankful for the grace of God, comforted by receiving it through faith alone, and that we would boast only in this grace, in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you again for these words. And we thank you, Lord, that though we are all sinners, all of us are nothing but poor sinners, beggars, you have extended salvation to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would warm our hearts with this truth and it would produce thankfulness, comfort, and humility, Lord. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.